Welcome to an exclusive recording of the Shepherd's Path, the Seerah of the Prophet ﷺ, taught by Sheikh Muhammad al-Sharif rahimahullah, in July of 2008. This episode is brought to you by Ilmspring, Islamic education for kids reimagined, a partnership between Al-Maghrib and Noor Kids. Our mission is to present the beauty of Islam to our children through unique programming that will educate, inspire, build character, and connect them to a thriving community, an online platform where kids aged 9 to 14 can learn what it means to love Islam, to gain a deeper connection with their faith, and grow into confident believers with a curriculum designed by experts in Islam and child education. A simple interactive portal and community of friends and mentors around the world, Ilm Spring is the new space for bright young believers. The Treaty of Hudaybiyah. So it's the sixth year of Hijrah. Sixth year of Hijrah. How long has it been since the Prophet ﷺ has seen the Kaaba? How long has it been? It's been six years, right? Since the Hijrah till now, it's been six years. Prophet ﷺ hasn't performed Umrah. So the Prophet ﷺ said to them, "Who would like to perform Umrah?" And of course, the companions, about a hundred or so. Actually, it was a thousand four hundred companions. Thousand four hundred companions went out to perform Umrah with the Prophet So they went out to perform Umrah. When you're performing Umrah, you cannot take weapons into the sanctuary of Mecca. You cannot take weapons into it. At the same time, the Muslims are not going to you know, just go with no weapons. So they had someone that was with the weapons. If they were attacked, basically this is like the lion's den. This is where the mushrikeen, all these battles that have taken place, this is where they live. And they're coming and they sent the news out that they're coming for Umrah, only Umrah, and they wish no harm to anybody. They're just coming for Umrah. And there's a lot of sympathy that came to the Muslims because of this. They have, they're in Ihram, they have their sheep that they're going to be slaughtering, and the Qala'id, the Qala'id is like when the sheep are being prepared to slaughter, being prepared to be slaughtered, they, it's like they're like these, um, they're not holy sheep, but they're, what I mean is that people, this is a person who's going for Umrah, and this is the sheep that's going to be slaughtered as part of the rituals. So the Arabs, these different Arab tribes, they love this. They love this. And they saw the Prophet ﷺ coming in such a way, and they were like telling Mecca, the Meccans, you better let them do Umrah. You better let them do Umrah. And the Prophet ﷺ came into the area, and they're now entering into like the Haram area, the sanctuary of Mecca which is larger than just the Kaaba area. Just like I said about Medina, actual Medina at the time of the Prophet ﷺ, the living quarters was the current masjid and the marble surrounding of it. That was like the dwelling place of the Muslims at that time. That was like to the maximum extent. Right? So all the Muslims that lived there at the time of the Prophet ﷺ, they're basically the masjid currently and the marble. If you've been to Medina, there's some smaller musallas after you pass the marble, there's like these small little masjids. They're like musallas. And those, at the time of the Prophet ﷺ, were outside of the city. Those are outside of the city. Now, the sanctuary boundary is much bigger than that. The sanctuary boundary goes all the way to Uhud. There's another mountain, like on the other side of Medina. Like the Prophet ﷺ said, the Haram is from. Uhud is one of them. The other mountain is called the Mountain of Thor. The mountain of Thor on the other side of Medina, and so it extends, it's quite large, the sanctuary. So similarly in Mecca, the dwelling places is something versus the sanctuary. So when the Prophet started entering into the sanctuary, the camel that he was riding on would not go forward. So he tried going, you know, coming left, right? The camel just sat down, it wouldn't move forward. And the Prophet said, leave it, 
And then he said, that the one who blocked the elephant from entering Mecca has blocked the camel. And then the Prophet said, that, there's no, that if they come to me with any type of plan in which those things that Allah made sacred will be protected, that I will agree to it. If they any type of plan whatsoever, I'm going to agree to it. Like today, they come with me, uh, come with anything. So the Prophet sent Uthman anhu to go and speak on behalf of them, to enter Mecca by himself. First, he was going to send Umar anhu. Umar is strong and can defend himself and so on. But yet, Umar would provoke people. And they wouldn't necessarily, he's not the person you send when you're, send when you're trying to negotiate. And so Umar anhu said, send Uthman. Uthman, everybody loves Uthman. Everybody loves him. We love Uthman anhu. Everybody loves Uthman and you know, he's in a better position. So when Uthman anhu, again, this is the whole army. Uthman's coming with no arms, no, uh, no weapons. And he enters into Mecca and the news goes out. News started spreading that Uthman had been killed. Once Uthman entered into Mecca, they executed Uthman. Now this is the news that came to the Prophet This is a critical point. This is the history of the Khulafa. Remember in the battle of um, Uhud, the Muslims experienced the death of the Prophet They experienced what it felt like. And they're going to be tested for real soon after this. Uthman anhu later was killed. When Uthman was Khalifa, he was killed. So those people who comment on Talha and Zubair and Aisha radiallahu anhu, what did they do? They stood up and they said, we will fight till the end to avenge the life of Uthman. A lot of people don't realize that that's exactly what the Prophet did in this moment in Hudaybiyah. A lot of times people just say, Ali radiallahu anhu, why didn't they just listen? They were doing what they saw the Prophet do. When the Prophet heard that Uthman had been killed, he hadn't been killed, but when that news came to him, they were going to fight till death. These 1,400 companions, men and women, they were going to fight till death to avenge the blood of Uthman radiallahu anhu. And so the Prophet took bay'ah from them, a pledge of allegiance, to fight till death in defense of Uthman radiallahu anhu. And it took place under a tree. And it's known as the Pledge of Allegiance called Bay'atul Ridwan, the Pledge of Ridwan. Ridwan is like pleasure, that Allah is pleased with them. Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, لَقَدْ رَضِيَ اللَّهُ عَنِ الْمُؤْمِنِينَ إِذْ يُبَايِعُونَكَ تَحْتَ الشَّجَرَةِ That Allah is pleased with the believers who pledged allegiance to you underneath the tree. So there's 1400, um, 1,400 companions. It's very simple. If anybody like curses some of the companions and there's like some difference opinion, just like, did they do bay'ah to the Prophet under the tree? The answer is yes. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, He is pleased with them. Surah Al-Fatih. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, I am pleased. Allah said it. Who can say anything after that? After Allah said, I am pleased with those who pledged allegiance. Allah has, is pleased with them. And those are the companions of the Prophet In order for someone to not be pleased or say something bad about the companions, they would have to do kufr in order to do that. They would have to disbelieve in the Quran to make such a claim. Later on, remember um, people, they used to attack Uthman radiallahu anhu, spreading rumors about him. And they said, oh, Uthman wasn't, you know, he ran away from the battle of Uhud. 
And Ibn Umar radiallahu anhu in Sahih Bukhari said, Allah said, وَلَقَدْ عَفَ اللَّهُ عَنْهُمْ That Allah forgave them. And then this person said to Ibn Umar, he said, he wasn't at Bayatul Ridwan. He didn't pledge allegiance to the Prophet ﷺ in Bayatul Ridwan. And Ibn Umar is telling him, the Bay'ah was for him. <laughs> right? So just, no, and believe me, like, it sounds foolish. It sounds foolish. But uh, people do things like that. They make statements. It sounds like, it was, it was funny. We were doing a Sira class. We were doing a Sira class in Toronto, and it sold out. It's like sold out to the maximum. And it sold out like two weeks before the class. And people started spreading rumors about us that we're blocking people from studying Islam. They're like, you can't deny us from studying the deed. It's called fire hazard, brother. <laughs> we can't stick you in a room. And the whole room. There's not a seat in the room. But yet people just throw things out like that. The bay'ah was for Uthman radiallahu anhu. And on top of that, he actually did bay'ah to the Prophet At the end, after everybody had done bay'ah, the Prophet ﷺ raised his other hand and said, وَهَذَا عَنْ Uthman," And this is on behalf of Uthman. And Ibn Umar told this guy later, he said, whose hand is better than the hand of the Prophet ﷺ? And so Uthman is counted because the Prophet ﷺ said that this bay'ah is on behalf of Uthman They found out later that Uthman hadn't been killed. Uthman, when he came to Mecca, they told him, why don't you do, you know, go ahead, perform Umrah. And he said, I will not perform Umrah before the Prophet ﷺ performs Umrah. And then they didn't, want, they didn't want to look bad in front of the Arabs that, oh, you know, their enemy just walks in and does Umrah and so on. So they sent someone to do a treaty with the Prophet ﷺ. The, the person's name was Suhail. Suhail. Suhail and Ibn Amr. And when the Prophet ﷺ saw him, he said, they wished to sign a treaty by sending this man. And when he saw him as well, he said, Suhail sahalallahu amrakum. That Suhail means like easy. And Prophet ﷺ said to them, Suhail, is there someone named Suhail here? You guys got a Suhail? He said, may Allah make your affairs easy. Which is like optimism. It's optimism. Being optimistic. You have a good sign, and you're optimistic of something good to happen. So the treaty was, um, Suhail came, they discussed with the Prophet ﷺ. There's some key points in the treaty that seem to be in the favor of, in the, favor of the mushrikeen. Those three things, it would be a treaty of 10 years, a peace treaty. For 10 years, there would be no more fighting between the Quraysh and mushrikeen. They, in the treaty, it says, whoever wishes to join the Muslims in this treaty may do so. And whoever wishes to join the mushrikeen, the Quraysh, may do so. And so uh, key people, Banu Bakr joined with Quraysh, and Banu Khuza'a joined with the Prophet These are two tribes, and it's important. Banu Bakr joined with Quraysh, Banu Khuza'a joined with the Prophet in the treaty, with the conditions that are there. In the treaty, what, the, what some of the companions disagreed with was Suhail, when the Prophet ﷺ said, this is a treaty between Quraysh and Muhammad, the Messenger of Allah. And Suhail didn't agree to him writing Messenger of Allah. So he said, you know, take that off. He was like, if we thought you're the Messenger of Allah, you know, there would be no point for this treaty. He's like, take it out. The companions are very angry. They said, no, that has to be kept in. And, and Ali radiallahu anhu, they're writing. The Prophet ﷺ said, take it out for them. And they, they couldn't do it. They didn't want to wipe Rasulullah off of it. So the Prophet ﷺ said, show me where it is on the paper. And he pointed his finger to it. And the Prophet ﷺ with his own hands, he wiped it out. 
And then if the Muslims, they said, whoever, you know, people are allowed to join whichever side that they want. If someone try, leaves Quraysh and tries joining the Muslims, the Muslims have to return them back. They have to extradite them back to the mushrikeen. That's part of the treaty. But if a Muslim apostates and leaves the Muslim and leaves and goes to the mushrikeen, then they don't have to return back to the Muslims. All right? So you got that the mushrikeen, if, they, if someone leaves from Mecca, they have to be returned back to the people of Mecca. If a, uh, if a Muslim goes back to the people of Mecca, goes to the people of Mecca, then the people of Mecca don't have to return them. The other condition was that they would not be performing Umrah this year. They would have to abandon and abort their Umrah and go home. No Umrah for them. And that they were allowed to come the next year and perform Umrah. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tests the believers. Once they agreed to these points, at that moment, there was a companion by the name of Abu Jandal. All these years, these six years had passed, he was not able to do hijrah to Medina because his father had like, imprisoned him and tortured him and chained him. He wasn't able to, uh, to do hijrah. So when he heard the Muslims were on the outskirts of Mecca, he came to them and joined them and he said, save me, save me, I've been tortured all this time. Suhail says, said to the Prophet this is the first you know, implementation of the treaty. He gets sent back to Mecca. And the, the Muslims are like, how can we send, you, send him back? He's coming to us, he's been tortured, we can't just let him go back to you. And, um, and then Suhail said, you know, even, and the Prophet said, we didn't sign the treaty yet. And Suhail said, well, if there's no value to your word, then what kind of a treaty is this? And so the Prophet ﷺ told Abu Jandal to be patient, and he sent him back. Now the Muslims, they have to abort their Umrah, they have to send one of their brothers who's being tortured back to the people who are torturing him. And Umar anhu was actually very angry at the conditions of the treaty. And he said to the Prophet ﷺ, he said, aren't we on the truth? Aren't they on the falsehood? Yes. He said, then why are we choosing disgrace in our religion? And the Prophet ﷺ said, I'm the messenger of Allah and I will not disobey him. And then Umar went to Abu Bakr and he said, aren't we on the truth? Aren't they on the falsehood? And he said, yes. Then why are we choosing disgrace in our religion? And Abu Bakr said, that Umar, he's the messenger of Allah and he will not disobey Allah, desist from what you're doing. And so Umar anhu, even he said, he felt so bad for the position he took on that, on, on the Treaty of Hudaybiyah. And he said that so long after that, he kept doing and repenting to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for the position that he took. And again, remember when we said about leaders that once a leader makes a decision in, in an issue of uh, difference of opinion, you should follow the leader. Typically, Muslims, when they have a difference of opinion with the leader, they will abandon the leader. But that's not what a Muslim does. A Muslim, once the leader, it's a person of knowledge, a person of taqwa, and they've come to a decision, you don't break away from the leader like that. You can have another opinion, everybody can change your opinion, but the unity of the ummah comes when they follow their khalifa or they follow their emir or so on and so forth and then the ummah is guided like that Umar went to Abu Jandal and he started dangling his sword in front of him so he's sticking his sword out so that Abu Jandal would take it and kill his father and escape 
Because, yeah, well, that would be because then it wouldn't be anything related to the treaty. But Abu Jandal didn't take that option. And he was dragged back to Mecca, right, to be tortured and continued. So the Muslims were in this big sadness that was upon them. And the Prophet ﷺ, after the treaties agreed upon, he told the companions to break their Umrah. How do you break your Umrah? You shave your head, slaughter the sheep, and you turn back. The companions, عنهم, they didn't do it. The Prophet ﷺ had told them, discontinue your Umrah, and they didn't listen to the Prophet ﷺ. So the Prophet ﷺ went into his tent, went into his tent, and he was his wife, Um Salama, anha. he said to her, I'm afraid if I tell them one more time, and they don't do it, Allah will destroy them. And so when you see the commandments of the Prophet al-Fiqh, they say when the Prophet tells someone to do something, the commandment is fard. Otherwise, the examples of this from the seerah, the statement of the Prophet if I tell them to do it one more time, that I'm afraid Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would destroy them if they don't follow my command. And so we understand that Allah sent the messengers to be followed. Not that we say, oh, is this only sunnah? And we try to avoid it. No, these are the commandments of the Prophet and we follow it. And so Umm Salama radiallahu ta'ala anha, and you see the, um, the beauty of Islam. This is his wife. She's a female. She gives the messenger of Allah a suggestion and he implements it. She said, Ya Rasulullah, she said, go out, shave your head in front of them, and when they see you shaving your head, then they will copy you. And the Prophet ﷺ loved her opinion, and he went back outside, and he shaved his head. And he slaughtered his sheep, and then the companions, عنهم, he didn't say anything other than that, the companions, عنهم, they shaved their heads. They said out of the sadness that they were in, they almost were cutting their heads with those blades, because of the grief that they were in, that they would have to go home and take this position. But they returned home. The year that the Muslims went for the Treaty of Hudaybiyah and they signed this peace treaty, the year after that they did come for Umrah. They did come for Umrah the, um, the next year, in the seventh year of Hijrah. There's no fighting taking place in these years. So this is taking place in the sixth year. There's these two years, the conquest of Mecca happened in the eighth year. During the year after that, they went and performed Umrah. When you go for Umrah, some people between Safa and Marwa, you run, you know, they have these green lights there. If you're between Safa and Marwa, you're um, hastening your pace. And a lot of people think that you're hastening your pace and running because of Hajar. Right? Remember when he said earlier uh, about Ismail and Hajj and she went between... You're going between Safa and Marwa. That's the sunnah of Ibrahim salam and his family commemorating the footsteps of Hajar. salam, And that all these Muslims, male and female, are going back and forth searching for the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But in those, that area, which is the old valley between Safa and Marwa, that area, it's not because of Hajar that the Muslims hasten their pace between there. It's actually because the Prophet ﷺ commanded the companions to do that. In this Umrah, Umrah al-Qadha, it's called Umrah al-Qadha, uh, as you said, Qaza. Qadha is to make something up. So they made it up the year after that. When they entered Mecca, you know when you're traveling, you feel very tired and so on? The Meccan people are sitting there and they're very well rested and they have their weapons and so on. They were like, we can kill them now. All of the companions are here. We'll kill them. They don't have any weapons and, you know, we'll make up for it later. So the Prophet ﷺ did not want them to see that the Muslims were tired and lazy people. 
So the Prophet ﷺ said, uncover your right shoulder. So if it ever looks like, you know, some guy uncovers his right shoulder, looks like he's flexing his muscles and stuff like that, that's what it's meant for. That's what it's meant for. The men uncovered their right shoulders, so you had all these companions who were, I'm sure, like rocks, right? So they're uncovering the right shoulder, and then the Prophet ﷺ said to do tawaf jogging. So you had like, again, if there's 1,400 companions in the first time when they did Umrah al-Qadah, at least, you know, you have more than that. And all of the companions, radiallahu anhum, all dressed the same, and they're all jogging around the Kaaba, flexing their muscles. What does that look like? And then, when they do between Safa and Marwa, they go up on Safa, and then they walk between Marwa. When they hit the valley and the mushrikeen can see them again, the Prophet said, don't walk lazily through the valley, hasten your pace. And so the Prophet ﷺ jogged through the valley and the companions of the Prophet ﷺ, they jogged through the valley, they did their Umrah. When the Muslims, when they, uh, in this treaty of Hudaybiyah, they came with 1,400. When they conquered Mecca, they came with 10,000. When they conquered Mecca in the eighth year of Hijrah, they came with 10,000 fighters. And so statistically, Islam spreads more at times of peace than at times of war. That's by the hardcore numbers. Just going by numbers, Islam spreads further under peace than it does under war. During the times of war, look at how many people became Muslim in Mecca. Very few. How many became Muslim? The Battle of Badr, Battle of Uhud, Battle of Al-Ahzab. Very few still. And Medina is like, altogether it's like 1,000. And then the Treaty of Hudaybiyah comes and the Muslims are able to spread the message in peace to the people and 10,000 people become Muslim. The Prophet ﷺ comes back with 10,000 people. So the Prophet ﷺ was in Medina and one of the companions of the Prophet ﷺ, Abu Basir. Abu Basir escaped from Mecca and went to Medina to be with the Prophet ﷺ. And like you said, the treaty is that they would send people back. So Abu Basir comes to Medina and Mecca had sent two people to chase him and bring him back. So when he went to the Prophet ﷺ, and he was with the Prophet ﷺ, then those two people came from Mecca and they said to the Prophet, send him back. And the Prophet ﷺ gave him back to them and he said, you have to go back, be patient and so on. So Abu Basir was returned back to the people of Mecca. On the way back to Mecca, and not very far from Medina, Abu Basir was like talking to them and so on. And he told the guy, wow, that's a really nice sword. And the guy was like... Uh, Guy's like, yeah, you like it? It's like, you know, it's like, it's like this Indian sword. It's not Bengali. <laughs> it's an Indian sword, and he's showing him. It's really sharp. So he's like, yeah, can I see that? He's like, yeah, go ahead. And then he gave him the sword, and Abu Basir took the sword and killed him. And then, so then the other from the, mush, the Mushra guy, he's too far from Mecca. Abu Basir is going to kill him. And so he can't run to Mecca. So who does he run to? He runs to the Prophet He's a Mushrik. And a Muslim's chasing him, and he runs to the Prophet for protection. And so he went to the Prophet and he's like, Save me, save me, Abu Basir is chasing him. And the Prophet said, he said, He said, like, woe to his mother, he'll ignite a war if he had anybody with him. So Abu Basir understood from that that the Prophet was going to. Um, capture him again and, and send him back to the people of Mecca. 
So Abu Basir was like, Ya Rasulullah, you've done your duty. You already gave me back to the people of Mecca. And so he understood from this and he took off in a different direction. So between Mecca and Medina, you had like Mecca, Medina, right? Abu Basir escaped from Mecca. The Prophet sent him back. But now Abu Basir, he's like, the Prophet said he'll, he'll ignite a war if he had anybody with him. So Abu Basir understood from that that he's going to be sent back. So he ran away. So he ran into basically into the mountains. Abu Basir is in the mountains. Now, th- what had happened reached the people of Mecca like Abu Jandal. Abu Jandal is who? Who's Abu Jandal? Who knows who Abu Jandal is? Yes, who is he? Okay, so Abu Jandal was the one who's being tortured in Mecca that tried to come out. Abu Jandal understood from the statement of the Prophet that he'll start a war if he has anybody with him. So he said, if I join forces with him, we can start a war together. So now Abu Jandal left Mecca and joined Abu Basir in the mountains. And then anybody who needed to escape from Mecca, they were not able to go to the Prophet so they weren't even trying to go to the Prophet They kept joining Abu Basir. And Abu Basir kicked off an army in the mountains and they would not let any caravan of the Mecca Quraysh pass through the area except that they would cut off every single caravan. So their business was completely cut off. And now they're fighting, they've gone into a war with Abu Basir. And it was with their own, they're the ones who made a treaty like that. They've gone to war with Abu Basir. The Muslims at that time, the Muslims now focused on other tribes. Tribes that had fought the Prophet in the Ahzab and so on. The Battle of Khaybar took place in this time. The Romans, the Byzantines. These things are happening. The Muslims gathered so many war spoils during these two years. And the Mushrik army, the Quraysh, were just fighting with Abu Basir, Abu Jandal, and that army. And so they're losing, and, and they're, you're broke, they don't have money, and all of this stuff. And then they sent a message to the Prophet saying, it's okay, you can take them. Just take them, take them back. And the Prophet sent for them, and they were able to join the Muslims in Medina. One of the, the key battles that took place during this two-year period was the Battle of Khaybar. The Battle of Khaybar. Khaybar is like near to Tabuk. Tabuk in, in Saudi Arabia right now, it's about seven hours journey. It's about seven hour journey by car. It's a very difficult um, journey. So in the Battle of Khaybar, I'm not going to go to the details of the Battle of Khaybar, but one of the key points in the Battle of Khaybar was Muslims were victorious and this Jewish woman there, she had prepared like a dinner or a meal for the Prophet and she asked the people, what portion of the, of the meat does the Prophet ﷺ like the most? And they said, the shoulder. So she poisoned the shoulder with like severe and intense poison. And when the Prophet ﷺ, the companions are not going to eat until the Prophet ﷺ eats. And so the Prophet ﷺ took a bite. Another companion took a bite. And then he said to everybody, raise your hands because the sheep has told me that she's poisoned. The companion that ate, only two people ate from the sheep. The Prophet ﷺ and another companion, everybody else pulled their hands back. The companion died from the, from the poison. It's very intense poison. And the reason I mention this is like this is happening in about the seventh year of Hijrah. Um, three years later, the mother of this companion was speaking to the Prophet ﷺ about her son who was killed shaheed from that poison in Khaybar. And the Prophet ﷺ said to her that even I am now feeling the effects of the poison taking over. 
And so the Prophet ﷺ also died. Allah joined in his blessed life ﷺ the rewards of a prophet, all of these things. And in, in, in that, also the reward of a shaheed ﷺ. So during this time, nations were invited to Islam. When you, if you've seen that dramatization of letters going out to different kings and so on, uh, Muhammad Rasulullah ila Kisra and all these people, Aslim Taslam, there is, uh, you know, come to Islam and you will be, you will have like peace and so on. And if you don't, then the sin of your people will be upon you. Or in other places, the Prophet wrote to them the verse of Allah Ta'ala ila kalimatin sawa in baynana wa baynakum. Come to common terms between us that we worship no one except Allah. And so the, the different kings of that time, the Persian king, the Byzantine kings, there's different kings that were receiving the message. The Persian king took the letter from the Prophet ﷺ, and when he saw that, he said, Min Muhammadur Rasulullah ila, when he saw the Prophet's name at the top, he got so angry, how dare someone put his name on top of my name? And he ripped up the letter. And the Prophet ﷺ said that he ripped the letter, may Allah rip apart his dominion. And, and the Persian king, that's exactly what happened to him. When it went to the Byzantine king, the Byzantine king, the Caesar, was like in Jerusalem, in that area. And at that time, the Arabs, Abu Sufyan, and they had a caravan going up there. This is about, I think, the third hadith in Bukhari. Something, it's one of the first hadith, not necessarily the third hadith. And that is when he got this letter, he started asking people if there was someone from like the family of the Prophet The person closest to the Prophet they said Abu Sufyan. Abu Sufyan is like from the family. And so he brought uh, Abu Sufyan and he told his people to stand behind Abu Sufyan and if he lies, that they should make a point that he's lying so that he would tell them the truth. And so the, the king started asking, Caesar started asking Abu Sufyan different questions about the Prophet and about his prophethood. And he said, I knew, for, and, and they're knowledgeable. Same thing with the Byzantines. They didn't pick uh, morons to be their leaders. They picked very knowledgeable people, courageous people, same thing. So he's very knowledgeable of the scriptures. He said, I know, he, this is a statement, I know from the scriptures that a time has come for a prophet. He's like, the signs are here. And he said, and I thought it would come from such and such a people, and I didn't realize that he would be coming from the Arabs. And then he started asking him questions. He's like, questions like, did you know him to give any lies before he came with this message? And Abu Sufyan said, no. And he said questions like, was his father a king? And he said, no. Different. He said, who's following him? Is it the rich people that are following him or is it the poor people? And Abu Sufyan said, it's the poor people. And, you know, no, we've never experienced any lie. And he said, the only thing that he could say bad about the Prophet ﷺ, when he said, have you ever experienced him lying? He said, no, but we're in a time of treaty with him right now. And he said, and we don't know what he's going to do. He said, that, and Abu Sufyan saying, that's the only bad thing I could say about the Prophet We don't know what he's going to do. And then that Caesar responded to everything that he said. He said, I asked you questions like, was his father a king? And you said, no. And he said, and that's the way of the Prophet. He said, if you said he was a king, I would have said that he's just trying to regain the kingship of his parents. And he said, and you said that he never lied to human beings. And he said, if that's the case, then he would never abstain from lying to human beings and yet lie against Allah. He wouldn't do that. And he said, I asked you whether it's the weak people that are following him or the rich people. And he said, the weak people. And he said, that's the way of the prophets. The weak people follow them. 
The weak people are the ones that follow them in the beginning until the other people come later and follow. Until he went to the end and Kisra was like this close to becoming Muslim. But again, once you know, he presented this to his priest, he's like, what do you guys think? Let's become Muslim. And then they freaked out. And when they freaked out and he saw that they're going to bring him down, then he was like, I'm just joking. He's like, I was only testing you to see if you were firm on your faith. But he chose the dunya over the akhirah, even though he knew the truth. In the eighth year of Hijrah, this is before, there's a, there's a key battle that took place, and that's the battle of Mu'ta. It was one of the first battles with the Byzantine army. Byzantines are like the Roman army. If you go to like Jordan, right, you go to Jordan, you will find many of the old Roman dwelling places there. I've been to those Roman dwelling places there. So the Romans, the Byzantine armies, they were in that, in the Sham area and so on. And actually, interestingly, historically in that area, there were not fights between Muslims and Jews. The fights were between the Christians and Jews. That's where the fights took place. Historically, it was the, so when the Muslims came into those areas, they weren't fighting Jews, they were fighting the Christians. The Christian armies were the ones that were there. Right? Crusaders and things like that. So the Battle of Mu'ta, the Muslims went out with 3,000 fighters into the Asham area. Sham is like north. So here's Medina. Seven hours up is Tabuk, and that's like going into the Sham area. And then comes in Jordan, comes uh, you know, Jerusalem and Syria and so on. In that area, the Byzantine army was coming. The Byzantine army is coming with, you're looking at 100,000 plus. And the Muslims were... Uh, so few in number, 3,000. The Prophet ﷺ had appointed three emirs for the army. The first emir was Zayd ibn Haritha. The second emir was Ja'far ibn Abi Talib. And the third emir was Abdullah ibn Rawaha. Anhum. About Ja'far ibn Abi Talib, where was Ja'far this whole time? Where was he? He was in Abyssinia. All these years he was in Abyssinia, in Habasha. And during the Battle of Khaybar, during the Battle of Khaybar, which took place, you're talking about like seventh year of Hijrah is the Battle of Khaybar. And now right after that comes the Battle of Mu'ta. Ja'far ibn Abi Talib is the brother of Ali radiallahu anhu. All these years he's been in Habasha. And when the Muslims conquered Khaybar, Ja'far had arrived at that time. The Prophet stood up and hugged him and said, I don't know what I'm more happy about. The conquest of Khaybar or the return of my brother Jafar. And so Jafar radiallahu anhu is there, and soon after that, Jafar was made second emir. That if anything happened to Zayd ibn Haritha, then Jafar would be the emir. If anything happened to Jafar, Abdullah ibn Rawaha would be the emir. The Prophet had never appointed more than one emir like this before. So they went out, 3,000 fighters. When they heard the news of how large the Byzantine army was, they stopped. And they didn't retreat, but they said, we should send a letter to the Prophet ﷺ informing him of the odds that we're up against and asking him, what should we do? And so amongst them, Abdullah ibn Rawaha, he said, had a beautiful speech that he gave to them. Abdullah ibn Rawaha was known as, remember I mentioned the poets of Islam? And we said Hassan ibn Thabit. Abdullah ibn Rawaha was one of them. He was very eloquent in his speech. Abdullah ibn Rawaha, he said to them, he said, verily the thing that you're afraid of is the exact reason that we've come out to this battle. Ash-shahada. 
He said, what you're afraid of is the exact reason that we came out, and that is like seeking a shahada. And he said, by Allah, we're not fighting them with our weapons. We're not fighting them you know, with, the, with these, um, you know, these things that we brought. We're fighting them with nothing except our deen. And he said, so go forward, for it's verily one of two great ends. Either Allah grants us victory, or Allah grants us shahada. And then the people said, Sadaq ibn Rawaha. They said, he's told the truth. And they stood up and they went forward and continued into the battle of Al-Mu'tah. Battle of Mu'tah. In the battle of Mu'tah, once they would enter into the battle, like the companions, they were encircled by the Byzantine armies. Like everybody was like fighting by themselves. There were so many of the Byzantine army there. The flag of the Muslims was held by Zayd ibn Haritha radiallahu ta'ala anhu. Zayd ibn Haritha was killed shaheed in the battle of Mu'tah. And his son, later you've maybe heard the story of Usama ibn Zayd, this is his father. And later, about two years later after this, the Prophet initiated another battle against the Byzantine army. And the emir was the son of Zayd ibn Haritha. Usama ibn Zayd, he was 18 years old when he became the emir of the army. So Zayd ibn Haritha was killed shaheed in the battle. Then Ja'far ibn Abi Talib took the flag and was killed shaheed in the battle. And then now the flag is sitting on the ground. And Abdullah ibn Rawaha, radiallahu anhu, he's standing and he's looking at the flag. What happens when he picks up the flag? He will be killed shaheed. So he hesitated. And so he wrote some poetry. And his poetry, he said, in his poetry he's having a conversation with his soul. Because as soon as he picks up the flag, he's going to die. And he said, Aqsamtu ya nafsi, he said, I, I, I've testified to you, O soul, to bend down and pick up the flag. He said, you're going to bend down and pick up the flag, or I'm going to force you to bend down and pick up the flag. Why do I see you, O soul? He said, when the people come together, is they raise their voices in crying. Obviously for the death of this soul. He said, Why do I see you disliking to enter Jannah? So he said the poetry, he picked up the flag and he was killed shaheed. The Prophet was giving the companions, Jibreel was bringing the news of the battle to the Prophet and this is the same when the Prophet when all three of the emirs were killed in the battle of Mu'tah, the Prophet said, Then it was taken by one of the swords of the swords of Allah. And that was Khalid ibn Walid radiallahu ta'ala anhu. And so that statement, you know, as people will say, the Prophet only speaks by you know, divine inspiration. And so Sayfullah the sword of Allah is a, a nickname from the Messenger of Allah وسلم, to Khalid radiallahu anhu. And um, I was in the history of the Khulafa class, you know, it's all about Khalid. Khalid radiallahu anhu, he owned those years after the Prophet وسلم, died. And everybody wanted to be on Khalid's side. And this is in this battle, Khalid radiallahu anhu took the flag and retreat and planned a retreat strategy for the Muslims. Every one of them escaped. No one was killed in the retreat. And they all went back. 
even though in retreats normally the whole army is executed. But Khalid took the flag and guided the whole Muslim army out of the area without anybody being killed. Anybody else being killed, nobody died in the retreat under the leadership of Khalid In the history of the Khulafa, which is the years after the Prophet about 30 years after, Khalid it's like Khalid owns it, time of uh, Abu Bakr, time of Umar, he owns it, owns it, owns it. And then all of a sudden in the class, even when I was preparing the notes, you hear nothing about Khalid. And I was like, you know, about three quarters of the way in the preparation. And then I was thinking to myself, I said, what happened to Khalid? Like, that's it. He just drops out of the picture. You don't hear any. And subhanAllah, I remember my heart beating really fast. Because I was afraid someone killed Khalid. And I searched the history, I looked up his biography, and I went through timelines and so on. And I went year after year looking at what happened to Khalid later on. Khalid radiallahu anhu on his deathbed, he died in his bed. And no one had killed Khalid radiallahu anhu. He said, there's not a part of my body that doesn't have a scar. There's no part of his body that doesn't have a scar. And he said, but yet here I am dying on my bed. He did not die on the battlefield. He died in his bed. And, and even one brother is saying that he was nicknamed as the sword of Allah. Nobody had conquered the sword of Allah. And he said, here I am dying on my deathbed. فَلَا نَامَتْ عَيْنُ He said, may the eyes of the cowards never find any rest. That was Khalid radiallahu anhu. So the battle of Mu'ta, the Prophet is giving the commentary. And Aisha radiallahu anha, she says, that when the Prophet ﷺ received the news of Ja'far anhu's death, his istishhad, the face of the Prophet ﷺ changed with sadness. And the Prophet ﷺ went to visit the wife of Ja'far anhu. Her name was Asma bint Umais anha. He went to her home and he said to her, I'tini bibani Ja'far. He said, bring me the children of Jaffa. And so Jaffa radiallahu anhu's kids came. And the Prophet <clears throat> he took them and he hugged them and he rubbed their heads. And she saw the sadness in the Prophet ﷺ's face. And she said, Ya Rasulullah. She said, may my mother and father be sacrificed for your sake. Has any news come to you about what has happened to Jaffa and his companions? And the Prophet ﷺ said, yes. They've been killed today. And then she started crying. And the Prophet ﷺ, he left the house and he said to the people, and this is one of the etiquettes we learn when someone has someone who's died in their family. The Prophet ﷺ said, He said, make food for the people of, uh, for the family of Ja'far for news that has, it has distracted them, preoccupied them, has come to them. And so from the sunnah of when someone has a, member, a family member, uh, someone who's deceased in their family, food is to be made for them. A lot of times our culture is such that the person, when someone dies, they have to start cooking for all the guests that are going to be coming over. And that obviously is a flip of the sunnah that that shouldn't be the case. They should not have to prepare food for anybody to come to their house. And you can imagine you have a family member died and people are sitting in the house and they won't go home. 
So the sunnah of the Prophet you do give your condolences for three days. So you're not reminding someone of the sadness after the three days. So you don't go to someone two months later and say, condolences, oh, your child died or your family member died. It's over, it's past, and they've dealt with it. So you're not reminding them of the sadness. Condolences is for three days. And after that, you're desisting from consistently talking about it like that. And condolences don't have to be at the house. They can be at the janazah, they can be in the road, they can be at the masjid. You don't have to go to a person's house. At the same time, the condolences don't have to be there. You don't have to spend a long period of time at their house. So if you're giving condolences, you pass your condolences. You don't even have to come into the house, give your condolences and leave. And if you're going to do something for the people who have had someone pass away, make food for them. So bring the food and give it to them. And this is kind of like a a sadaqah technique. When everybody is doing sadaqah at one period of time, such as Ramadan, for example, everybody gives sadaqah in Ramadan, correct? What happens two months after Ramadan? The time for charity has ended. There's no more sadaqah. Nobody gives sadaqah. That's a most valuable time to give sadaqah. When everybody else is held back, that's when you come in and you start giving your sadaqah. So a really beautiful thing to do is everybody might be giving food right at the beginning, but you could come later, you know, maybe a couple of days later and bring some food for them. Come a week later, bring some food, and, and take care of them. Take care of the family, bringing food like that. This, um, this battle of mu'ta, technically, technically the Muslims had retreated. That is haram in Islam and it's a major sin. It is haram in Islam. It's a major sin. And a person who retreats from the battlefield, from the front lines, um, technically will go to hellfire for that. Technically. Now, there are reasons, uh, uh, exceptions to that. A person can retreat. If, let's say, a smaller group of Muslims go and they're fighting and they retreat to join with a larger force, that's permissible. It's a strategy of war to back up, to go with, so it's not included. Or again, a strategy or to join forces. So the Muslims, when these fighters returned back to Medina, some of them actually never returned to Medina. Because of the shame of returning, going from the battlefield, they went and lived amongst like the Bedouins. Some of those who returned home, they went to their houses and the women had locked the doors. And the children were stoning them when they came into Medina. And they were saying, Ya furrar farartu min sabirullah. O ye who ran away, O, o runners away, the people who ran away, you ran away from the path of Allah. And so you can imagine the sadness they had of retreating, and on top of that, they're coming home to wives and children that have abandoned them for what they did. And so the Prophet ﷺ said to them that I am the party that every Muslim can retreat to. And so by the words of the Prophet ﷺ, that exception that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions in the Qur'an, the Prophet ﷺ said, this is the exception that applies here, that they were retreating to a larger group of the believers.